Welcome back to another episode of Seeing Life from a Different Angle. This is actually a podcast number 14. I misidentified last week as number 12, I think. Doesn't matter ultimately, but I wanted to correct that mistake on my part. And thank you for coming back. And for those that are new, thank you for joining us. This podcast has really evolved in some interesting ways. And for those of you that are new, you know, I wanted to kind of give you a brief synopsis of the idea behind this podcast. And for those of you that are not, then maybe a reminder of what this podcast is about. Um, but one way or another, it is ultimately an opportunity to kind of listen to, explore, and also give some feedback from your part um, about ideas that are psychological in nature and spiritual, religious in nature, as well as philosophical in nature. And what I wanted to do and want to do throughout the life of this podcast, as well as the blog that goes along with it at times, is to kind of combine these in a way that is unusual and different. Because I think we tend, when we look at anything, oftentimes tend to see it from only one angle. And that's the premise of this show, is to see things from a different angle including being able to incorporate these other pieces in it. Now, I'm reminded of a, a conversation that I had recently with the gentleman who was telling me that, you know, he spends most of his days dealing with people's issues and troubles. It sounds like a therapist. And, you know, when he goes home, it's very, very difficult to have the connections that he longs for in his life. And it's got me thinking a lot about all those three different avenues, you know, the philosophical perspective, the psychological perspective, and the religious perspective, and how they fit into that piece of life and fit into everyday life. When I was a boy, I'd say I was about 16 years old, I had decided that I was going to write the story and I was going to hand the story over to a friend of the family. And that friend, not somebody I particularly enjoyed spending time with, but he really did seem to care a great deal about my parents and my older brother. And so I, I wrote this story. And the story, it started, um, I never got finished with it, unfortunately. Or fortunately, who's to say. But one way or another, uh, the story involved or began with this man who wakes up one morning and peers out his window and sees this mountain range that was not there before. Specifically a mountain. This mountain that was not there the night before is suddenly there. And he sets out to try to figure out why it's there and how did it come to be and what is it about and begins this trek toward this mountain to see what he can find. I gave the story I handed the story over to this friend of the family and summarily was rejected. <clears throat> Not so much for the fact that, you know, it was me being rejected, but he said, you know, I don't, I don't get it and I don't like it. And it really was the last time that I ever stopped to think about writing nonfiction. Or I should say fiction. In this case, hopefully it's not not nonfiction, but to writing fiction, 
I think because there was a part of me that felt like, you know, I couldn't really grasp what it was that made people interested in fiction, you know. And so I've committed much of my life, most of my life, since that time, to reading nonfiction. Every once in a while, I will find myself in a book, you know, in some type of fiction, but pretty quickly and summarily I put it down. And having thought about that event, all these years later since, you know, it's now, I'm now 60, so that would have been 44 years ago, how time passes. And, you know, I think, you know, what is it that that event meant to me? Like I said, it wasn't that he was a friend of mine. As I say, I didn't even particularly like him as a person that much. He was arrogant and pushy and thought himself rather erudite. And so he would let everyone know using his 50 cent words how bright he was. But one way or another, you know, his words had an effect on me. They had a, for one of a better way to put it, a profound effect upon me because I stopped writing. And it also challenged my sense of self-worth. I know it's not that big a thing. You know, after everything is said and done, I moved on. I fell in love. I got married. I had kids and had a career. And so did it really damage me externally? No. But I think it did have some effect on me at a very internal level. You know, not more severe than many other people have dealt with. You know, it's not truly a traumatic experience but i do think that all experiences no matter how big or small are worth looking into and trying to understand you know because i think one of the events or one of the side effects i will say of that was that it really drove me that much deeper inside of myself i think it's would be an interesting thing to consider and so i thought i would talk about it today what is it that that story was supposed to be about and why was it that that story in and of itself, when it was rejected by this man, you know, even though it was just a very rough draft and it was the very beginning of the very first chapter, why was it that it was so difficult or painful for me that I just stopped writing? Not only stopped writing, even stopped thinking that I was even any good at writing. So let's go back to the story. The story itself was simple in concept, you know. Here's this man, wakes up one morning, sees this mountain that wasn't there before. Bizarre and twisted and confused, of course, because those types of things don't tend to happen. You know, though I am reminded of the, the gospel where Jesus says, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. But one way or another, in this case, back at a time when I wasn't very religious, I was not, you know, I was doubting my faith in so many ways, I still found this story, this idea of this mountain being there to be of interest. So it really had nothing to do, as far as I was aware at the time, with Jesus' words. But I think looking at it now and looking back at it, I think I'm struck by it from two different angles. One is a psychological, and so we'll start there. And then the second is really more of a philosophical angle. From a psychological angle, I think part of it was interesting in this sense that this man was alone. He witnessed something that you never know if anybody else witnesses. All you know is that he has witnessed it in his aloneness. 
The story doesn't say whether or not he is with anyone else or whether anyone else is in the home. But I do pass on in the story the idea that he is going to explore this by himself. And I think that that's of interest because, you know, it does reflect back onto the author, in this case me, what it is that might be going on within myself psychologically, and I believe was going on within myself psychologically at that time. Now, I was a very shy boy, and, you know, whenever my name was announced on that very first day of class, it was a dreaded day for me, you know, because, first of all, my first name is William, and my last name is Spidlier. Now, there are very few people who can pronounce the last name Spitalier, which is Italian in origin. And, you know, until you say it, remind, it rhymes with chandelier, most people don't get it and they struggle with it. And it certainly was fodder for a lot of kids to make fun of me and my brothers as well, I'm sure, throughout school. But the thing that made it difficult is I don't go by William. I go by Daryl, which is my middle name. And so, of course, not only would I have to correct their statement of my last name or their mispronunciation of my last name, I would also have to say, and I go by. And of course, that just meant more time with me having to vocalize instead of just being able to say, yep, here and be done. And so that shyness, I think, was bred in me throughout my life by a myriad of different experiences. And those experiences, I think, oftentimes left me feeling very much alone. You know, raised in a family of five boys, you know, each of us desperately seeking a measure of attention as children are wont to do from our mom and from our dad, who thankfully were together and who did thankfully love each other. You know, we, we all sought out a measure of attention. And I think, you know, there got to be a point in time after the birth of my youngest brother, who was eight years younger than me, that I was already sinking inside of myself you know, trying to figure out how I fit, trying to figure out where I fit into this world. And, you know, isolation was something that I would use. I would take walks in the woods or long bike rides by myself. And it's reminiscent of this character from this, from this story who has no name, as far as I know. I know he never got, he never got that far, but I never named the character. But he was like me you know he was alone and at least i felt that way even though i was in a crowded room so to speak but you know he then proceeds to experience this event this magical event and this is i think where the philosophical piece comes in for me because you know it brings to mind the writings of c.s lewis and one of the things that he had spoken about many 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 times was how we had lost a sense of magic. You know, when we tried to classify space, for instance, as this cold and expansive space, place, you know, that it is lacking in the magic, lacking in the beauty that existed at one time when we would look at things differently, more fully, more humanely, you know, more humanistically, perhaps, instead of scientifically it isn't like they didn't couldn't fit in the same space but why did we have to choose one over the other instead of being able to have both
And I think it's one of the things that we fail to recognize in our educational system, whether it's from elementary school on up, is the fact that magic or the magical concepts, or as I refer to it, that wide open reality is a part of who we are. And we shy away from it out of fear, out of confusion. And so when this man in this story sees this mountain, it is a magical experience, a magical event. It's like, you know, certainly not to the grand degree, and I apologize for any comparison because I certainly am no writer like C.S. Lewis, but it's a lot much like the wardrobe in Narnia, you know, that idea that here is something truly magical that allows me to move from a common space, you know, that myopic reality, as I would put it, into this new space, this magical space. And that's really part of what this journey was about for this man in the story, was to find out what is this place? Where did it come from? It's sad in its own way because he was doing it very, very much alone. But it also in this moment brings up a measure of sadness in my thoughts for this man because as he said, I don't get it and I don't like it. You know, look, looking back at those comments from all these years later, it makes me feel sad for him because I think, you know, while it may not have been a great story, it may not have been well written, I don't know. You know, I was 16. So, you know, when we're 16, we think differently than we do as adults. But one way or another, it's very sad because I wondered, looking at it now, had he lost some measure of that magic in his life? Had his reality become so myopic? Had it has his fence or had his fence been so high that he couldn't see beyond it? And so he didn't like what it is he didn't he read there because he didn't see it. He didn't understand it. At least that's my question. You know, I can't, certainly couldn't speak for him especially from this great distance of time. But it would be interesting to consider, you know, how often do we tend to avoid those types of things that make us deeply, truly uncomfortable? And was he uncomfortable with the notion of that aloneness? Was he uncomfortable with the notion of something magical happening? You know, was he uncomfortable with the idea of someone taking a journey to try to understand this magical experience? It's hard to say, but how do we bring this back to the beginning statement, which was about the idea of this gentleman, you know, struggling to say what it is he needed to say when he got home after having spent all day, quote unquote, listening to other people complain. I think it has a lot to do with it. I think the first thing is, is that it has a lot to do with that aloneness. You know, we get so trapped in our own minds with our own thoughts and our own feelings and our own fears. And we do feel very much alone, even in these moments when everything should be non-magical. In other words, when it's just another human being and they're there and they may be wildly interested in hearing everything that we thought about or everything we've done throughout the day. You know, for him, it was his family. You know, but I think it's true for all of us as our times when we hide away, shy away from being able to talk about these events and experiences in our lives. And what a sadness that is, really, because, you know, do we want to be this 
intrepid explorer lonely, isolated, disconnected. I don't believe that's how we were meant to be. You know, we've talked before, and for those of you that are new, we haven't spoken about this before, but I'll mention it now, but we've talked before about how we are all part of a brotherhood. You know, I was shocked by a quote that I had made or I put up on Facebook about, you know, how the stranger that we pass by is our brother and that mankind is our business and that taking care of others is our purpose. I was shocked by how many people responded to that. Not a single negative comment, surprisingly, in this day and age, but, you know, there was there were almost 2,000 individuals on Facebook, and I don't even know 2,000 people in my whole life. Um, but 2,000 individuals, you know, responded to that, saw it. And it led me to wonder, you know, are they seeing things differently? Are they wanting a connection with others? Are they willing, when they pass by a stranger, are they willing to see that this person is a part of the family of humanity, the Catholic family, with a small c, you know, where we are all part and parcel of the body of Christ. You know, it's, again, returning to the metaphor of C.S. Lewis, where he talked about the ships and the convoy, you know, we have to do what we can morally to not hurt others. We have to do what we can morally to take care of ourselves and make sure that we are ship shape. Because we also have to remember that morally we are a part of one body. We are a brotherhood. And so, what does it take? What does one experience that leads one to go home after a long day's work and not connect to be that isolated individual like in the story? You know, what have they gone through in their life? Just like what did I go through in my life that led me at eight years old, matter of fact, even at five and six, to pull inside of myself you know, I think it has a lot to do with the great depth of fear, in particular, the fear of not really being worthy, of not really seeing oneself as lovable, as desirable, as interesting, as fascinating, you know, as someone people could care about. And I think when we do see ourselves that way, we do tend to isolate. We do tend to pull back. I think it has less to do with what it is we experience during the day and more to do with the feeling that we believe others wouldn't understand us. That maybe we don't see ourselves as someone that they're, they would want to understand. You know, it's much like when a husband, will say, comes home after a long day. And he is with his wife. And the wife has been with the kids all day. And she's like, please don't touch me. The kids have been over all over me all day. Now, there is, of course, some truth to the physical aspect of that. But is it also the other side, which is, you know, I have been alone. My thoughts, my feelings all day. And I really would like to be connected with you, not just physically, but emotionally connected with you. You know, when we think about just as a slight sidebar, you know, when we think about relationships, men and women see it differently. They really do. And it's amazing to me how often men cannot see what it is that women are experiencing. You know, they think, and I've, I've even heard this said, 
by patients to me over the years, you know, if I just had sex with her, then I'd feel closer to her. But women don't see it that way. Women look at it differently in the sense that the emotional need, the intellectual need, the need for the other person to touch me in ways that are not sexual but are kind and caring and nurturing, the ways of accepting me for who I am as a whole, these needs need to be met first in order for the sexual need to be gratified. So in other words, they're building up towards something, whereas men are building down. Men will say, okay, well, if we just have sex, then we'll be, I'll feel so close to you. And I think there's a great deal of aloneness in relationships as a byproduct of that because we're not really seeing this other person. We're not really seeing them as someone we're connected to. Given time, given time, that will lead to disastrous ends where the woman in the relationship will feel alone and misunderstood. The man in the relationship will feel alone and disconnected. And I think it's important for us to stop long enough to consider, you know, is, is this fear that is dictating how it is I relate to this other person? Is it a fear of losing this person? Is it a fear of not being enough for this person? You know, is it fear that makes me want to isolate myself even in a room crowded with people? It was for me, certainly. It has been throughout most of my life, and it's only very, very recently that I can say without any hesitation that I'm happy to be around other people. I'm happy to have joined this group of church of other men. You know, I'm happy to spend more time with my wife and my kids and my grandkids because I don't want that isolation anymore. But also this, I don't fear the connection anymore. So it does come from both directions. The isolation may seem to give us some measure of comfort, but it's a facade, it's an illusion. It doesn't comfort us, it just eases us takes away it relieves us for a moment from the tension that we believe we might experience if we let ourselves connect a true connection gives us a blessing it is an opportunity to say i am part of something i am loved and i am valued and i am connected to another human being when we only look at things from a psychological perspective like love when we think about love as the gratification of our ego's needs, which is a theory I've been proposing for, for quite a long period of time, it isn't love completely. It is a part of love, but it is short, it runs short, because what it can do, and the most it can do, is offer us a measure of relief. But when we add the other piece to it, when we add that other piece that says, I need to not just be here for myself and my own gratification, but even more importantly, I need to be here for you. I want to give you these things. I want to give them consistently, and I want to give them because I see great value in you as a part of the same body as me. If we don't include Christ into this equation, if we don't include God into this equation, all we have is a one side. You know, God made us, and the world distorts us. It distorts us in order to make sense of how it is that the world believes we're supposed to fit here. But in truth, it does us harm because it moves us away from the beauty that is good and it is God. And it's like I said to you in a previous podcast, 
about the patient who believed that God was no longer looking at him. And I said to him, you know, is it God that stopped looking at you or was it you that stopped looking at God? It really is us that stops. We turn away from love because we become afraid. I sank inside of myself and the character in the book sank inside of himself to the point where he was alone. And that loneliness, that sad loneliness is something that we all confront. But if we just turned around, would things be different? Would we be able to see something that was always there, but we never allowed ourselves to see that in that moment when the teacher asks me for my name or says my name, there's an opportunity there. It's an opportunity to feel like I want to be a part of this. I wish you the best.